0: Rahm.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the Savage Chromcast, Season 12, Episode 8. Oh, brother, where art thou? I'm Josh. I'm Luke. And I am Jonathan. Oh, muse, sing in me and through me tell the story of that podcast, skilled in all ways a contendant, wanderers, harried for years on end. That's us three. We're the Chromcast. Howdy, everybody. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We've been traveling uh long mess of miles
1: right a long and lonesome road to get to this point in the season and i'm excited to talk about the the topic at the hand tonight because we're going to talk about the classic i think 2000 movie from uh the coen brothers called oh brother where art thou i'm psyched
3: it's going to be great because it's it yeah, I man
1: it's a great is, movie
2: this is uh such a such an excellent movie. There's so many things to talk about, like any awesome Coen brothers movie. There's like, I don't know. You just swivel your point of view and you can talk about, talk about the subject for a couple hours and then take a couple sidle steps over. And then you talk about it for another couple of hours and you just keep moving around. Like there it's, it's astounding to me the way that they construct like a piece of art to have so many different ways to think about, uh, something that superficially looks very genre, you know, cause they operate within genre confines, but yet they're able to do so much with it.
1: Yeah. And this one, I, I don't know of another movie that is similar to this. I just, I can't think of one that off the top of my head that, that is comparable or similar, similar. Yep. But we'll get into all of that. Um, uh, before we do, before we get into uh the the main meat of the, the tale, let's do a drink roll call. What are you guys having tonight? What beverages are you imbibing? Luke, I'll let you go first.
2: Okay. I have uh some uh Evan Williams black label and uh and a cup with some ice. Uh getting nice and watery. I'm wrapping that up and then I brought a handful of PBRs up with me too. Nice. So uh I'm keeping it classy
3: with a. Uh, Evan Williams and PBRs. I have sweet some old granddad one fourteen. Wow, Ooh, hot! I felt like it was appropriate for the evening. Yeah. It is appropriate. That's it appropriate. It, the The man's face on the bottle makes me think of the governor from this film, Papi O'Daniel? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh, Did you put a, an ice cube or two on it, or are you just uh, no? I was just doing it straight. Wow! Sheesh.
2: Get those from... uh, those those that that esophagus of. of
1: of might.
3: That's nice. yeah. Can you hear it? It's moving. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: that's 13 extra proof than you're normally imbibing that's there.
3: true. It's true. I, I leveled up for the evening. What yeah. are you drinking, Josh? Uh,
1: I've got some uh, Hofbrau Dunkel that I picked up from Total Wine. Um, pretty nice. I like the Dunkel. And then I'm also having a little bit of Heaven Hill, um, the green label. Nice. So I've got both of those to keep me company And get me through this journey that we're taking tonight We should, so,
3: we should have had so, and Budweiser
1: Yeah <laughs> 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 But uh, that's what we're drinking Let's get into some some banter For, Further adventures of banter
2: Banter about? which? What's in our boot?
1: It's about one thing One thing. It's
2: banjo one
3: thing.
1: John, clockwise, you are the selected starter.
3: Sweet. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with a podcast that I just listened to about four episodes of recently. It's called American Scandal from Wondery. Either of you ever given it a, a go?
2: Nope, Uh, I'm nodding because I've heard of it and it's on my listen, but I have not yet cued
3: any of it up I was taking a long road trip recently to a field site and so I needed something new I had kind of worn myself out on behind the bastards and some of the others And I just looked up history podcasts on uh, podcast attic and this is one of the ones that popped up as pretty popular And when I opened it the first four that I saw were about the fall of big tobacco in the united states and it was very well done. It was a very well-crafted story. The man that hosts it, uh, his name is Lindsey Graham. I don't think it's the same Lindsey Graham. <laughs> and he does, he does little bits where he's all the characters. And so he, he would be like the Philip Morris executive and he would be the scientists. And uh, it was interesting. I didn't expect that. But it was sort of a nice little bit of polish, and he does a good job with it, and there's some good interlude music. It was just the the right podcast for my trip, so I I mowed through the four episodes about Big Tobacco that I saw. I think there's one more that I need to do, and then I'm going to listen to the ones that he did about the Branch Davidians here next. But it's pretty interesting. Uh, if If you're into weird American history topics where bad things happen and not necessarily involving good people, it seems like a good choice for you. Nice, man. Awesome. Sounds cool. How about you, Luke? So, uh, so my one thing
2: is very much in theme with our season. It's a Manly Wade Wellman, uh, novel that I was able to mow through, uh, I, I had mentioned it, I, I couldn't, I, I can't remember for sure when, when I had mentioned it, but in a previous episode that I would try to get through this because I was able to pick it up. Uh, but I was able to read the novel After Dark, which is another Silver John story. And it's a great little, it's a great little tale. So, uh, so this is a, this is a full novel. This came out in 1980. Uh, there's what, like two or three Silver John Novels. There's this one. There's Old Gods Waken. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I feel like it, there's three.
2: Yeah, maybe there's a yeah, and uh, uh, the Lost and the Lurking is another okay. one, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so uh, this is cool. It is. I don't want to say it's short because it's a novel, but it's like a sub 200 page. It's like 100 and it's 184 pages, and I read it over two different nights, just sitting around. Drinking a whiskey, just mowing through mowing through a book. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty quick read. Uh, and actually, that's not true. The next morning, I, w- I read it across uh, two nights and a Sunday morning because I drank copious amounts of coffee on Sunday morning, uh, which is something like this. This novel is structured such that Silver John, and it's a very similar format to some of the stories that we've talked about in that there's a relatively small cast uh, of people. Like Silver John shows up. He's there for a music festival. He rolls into town. He makes a couple of acquaintances. He ends up getting a weird read from the audience. And he ends up back at Mr. Ben's cabin. And basically Mr. Ben lives back in the hauler. And he is like that cabin and his ownership of the land is kind of the focal plot point of the whole story. And this isn't, this is kind of like the preamble for the larger story, but what's revealed is that there's a, a race, like an ancestral, like deep race of, uh, Shinokans. They are basically the original pre homo sapien, uh, cat eyed peoples that lived in North America and they want their land back. That kind of story only there. They are, uh, uh, trying to, Usurp the land by a variety of of uh, witchcraft and deviltry, as you might see, as you might might would guess within a, a Silver John story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, it's just really cool. There's like there's Silver John, there's the owner of the cabin, Ben, and then there's Miss Callie and her love uh-huh. interest, and there's like there's like four people. So it's it's it is very much like a a play. Or like set up in that format, and it's a series of I don't know twelve or thirteen chapters. It's really kind of cool, uh, and I don't know if you can get a hold of this for I would say under ten bucks. Snag it, and you can you can snag it on books for around that price point between seven and ten bucks. Uh, pick it up, give it a read. It's it's a cool
1: longer form Silver John story, but it's also a pretty quick thing. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm really interested and intrigued in the all the Appalachian, um, I don't know, like the quilt squares, the traditional mm-hmm. sort of uh, quilt square names that like, you were sending me the other day.
2: Yeah, so it's funny because reading this, it like at least in three different instances, uh, Manly Wade Wellman throws out references to specific uh, quilting patterns and uh it's very specific and it was clearly something that like i mean he knew about it but i almost wonder if it was on his mind the other thing is like there's a heavy focus on like hearth and home like it's kind of a a home invasion slash uh what's the right word like Uh, Like, like people are holding out the fort against these outside invaders. Like people are just a siege. Like it's almost like a siege tale. By the time you get to the back end of the story, it's a siege tale. And so at one point, those comments like pretty detailed comments about how to just whip up a a homemade stew with like with what they had in the cabinets. And then there's another instance earlier on where there's a breakfast scene where it's like homemade flapjacks and good, strong black coffee. And then like Ben and sail uh, and sailor John and, and silver John and silver John go out to collect some wild honey from a beehive. And so it goes in depth and like how they collected like honey from this wild beehive. Cause, cause Ben is a, is a wild bee, like, like caretaker kind of guy. Uh, and so there's this attention to like, like a uh, cuisine and and food and hearth and home and quilting, like a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily like. They're not very pulpy. They're not very sword and sorcery, but they're super cool, especially within the mm-hmm. weird, the weird pulp uh, story that that Wellman's tor- telling here. So yeah, it's it's super cool uh, to to read it from that angle and it's uh i don't know it's just it's interesting because it plays it dabbles in a lot of different weird uh like playgrounds like there's a lot of sandboxes that it dips its toes in like with the ancient races it's it's the same kind of thing that you would think about like with uh the mirrors of Tuz and thune and like the coal stories and the 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 reptile like kind of like uh peoples and all of the craziness that goes along with like modern day conspiracy theory, Mm -hmm. weird, weird culture. It's that kind of stuff. Only it's this other weird, like native race that, that Manly Wade Wellman created or presumably like, I don't know, maybe he pulled it from other sources, but it's, it's
1: super cool. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, it's like, uh, it's like the brand McMoran, like the pits, right? The, the, the the, uh, not really a precursor race, but a civilization that once was expansive that has since fallen due to circumstances.
2: Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's cool because the point person for this ancient race is a very well spoken uh, mover and shaker kind of, kind of guy. and, he, I think, and I haven't, I haven't totally digested this, but one of the things that was occurring to me as I was reading the back end of the novel is with Carl Edward Wagner's story sticks. There is a character in that story that's uh, a superficially a smooth talker, but is actually kind of the big bad uh, with the way that things play play. And I wonder how how much overlap there might be given you know that Wagner had this this inspiration that he drew from from Wellman like that type of arc that, that the archetype is something that's kind of between the two too so so that's my one thing that's a little bit long-winded but it's a manly way Wellman novel and we're doing a manly way Wellman season so maybe that's the like that's a good little bit of information I was really hoping that when I read it that it would have some level of like overlap with O oh brother War art thou Yeah, so that I could kind of, but but it really doesn't. It's kind of its own unique thing. I'm like, well, shit, this really needs to be like my one thing that I that I that I talk about here. So anyway, so that's me rambling. All right, I'm gonna pass pass the baton. Take us home, dude. Take us home, dude. I
1: I have the conch. Uh, Yeah. So my one thing is I I have developed over the last several days this fascination with pocket knives, and um the idea of just sitting down and trying to whittle a shape of something out of a block of wood. And so, um, I've had this gift card to Woodcraft for quite some time and I, I was sort of just waiting to use it so that I could take a a bowl turning class or a pen turning class there. But, um, during COVID, right. It's, it's going to be quite some time before they offer any classes. and I wanted to go ahead and just, just, uh, chase this fancy that I'm feeling. So, I went to Woodcraft and picked up a uh, uh, a Whittlin knife that is uh, very explicitly a Whittlin' knife, right, John?
3: <laughs> yes. He sent me a picture of it earlier, and it said Whittlin' knife made <laughs> <Yeah>. for whittling."
1: <laughs> it's it's for whittling. Uh, it's a Flex Cut brand Whittlin' jack, um, and so it's a folding knife with two blades. Uh, one is a a, a two inch. Roughing knife, and the other is an uh, inch and a half or so, and it's for finer detail work, I suppose, uh, with a little bit sharper point to it. It looks like, and um, this this trip into wood carving and whittling got me thinking about pocket knives, and and that's definitely an Appalachian tradition, right? This this idea of trading pocket knives, and, and maybe even an Ozark tradition, and and uh, a rural tradition all through America. I'm not sure. Um, did, did your guys' grandfathers carry pocket knives? Oh yeah, absolutely.
3: Oh yeah, for sure, man. What's what your... kind? Did... Well, my Sorry, grand... go ahead. My grandpa had a, he worked for Pioneer Hybrid, uh, the corn seed company. And he had a Pioneer Hybrid pocket knife that on one side, it looked like an ear of corn. I remember that very distinctly. And I ended up getting one for Christmas once. That was a, a really, I still own it actually. It's my like fingernail trimming knife. That's awesome, man. Yeah,
2: uh, yeah so uh, case knives were kind of the the Cadillac of, of knives growing up for me, like that style of the, the standard uh, folders. And so uh, I remember I, I don't have it anymore. I don't know whatever ultimately happened to it, but I had a case when I was very young that I promptly – broke the tip off of trying to mess around. But that's what happens when you give a 10 or 11 year old a knife. Uh, (laughs) and I carry that thing for forever. Uh, but yeah, I have a couple different, uh, case knives that I've been like gifted over the years that, that I've carried to varying degrees. Uh, I have like the main thing that I carry now is just this old beater Kershaw. I've had it since like twenty fifteen, uh, but it's a it's a shuffle. I'm really intrigued and in, in, like I the, the blade design that I really like. I guess I like short fat knives, uh, like the 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 sort of like uh, drop points, very wide blade, so that you can use it for. A variety, like you're not necessarily going to stab anything with it. You're going to like hew and and carve and and hack and and shave with it. Uh, mm. I like that design a lot. And so this Kershaw Shuffle, again, it's like a twenty dollar knife, and I've carried it for at this point five years. I've worn the hell out of this thing, but it's still just going hard. Like I haven't done anything. Like I hate I hate uh, pocket clips on knives. Okay. So uh, I as soon as I got it, I busted out the, the the little screwdriver set and rip that thing off because i want something that's like a slim profile but that thing is just it's the right size for carrying in my pocket and i just love it to death i've carried it out in the woods i carry it to the office like every day it's in my pocket it's it's that edc thing uh that's my main knife that i carry now but for carving i have a couple little little knives that i really like and really I've got this little case that my mom gave me that has – it's a peanut and it has this baby little blade on it. But it's really great for once you get like a piece of wood kind of like shaved down in your hand, you can really like do the fine work if you're like trying to do like a little figure or a like a, a toy or something like that. Like that's the that's the kind of wood carving that I've done so far is like kind of figurine like toy type carving and it's perfect for that. And that thing, that thing holds an edge just like sharper than hell. It'll, it'll cut your finger off, but uh, a beater Kershaw for every day. And then a couple little cases for, for carving. That's, that's what I,
1: what I do is that uh, I like that Kershaw that you have, by the way, I I like that knife a lot. Um, So this knife, the reason I got it is because most of the pocket knives I have were gifted me by my grandfather. And so there's there's a little bit of sentimental value yep. to them, and right. one of them that uh, I have is is a uh, a case. Uh, it's got three blades on it. I don't know if that's a uh, um I don't know what style knife that is, mm-hmm. but it's got you know the three. It's got the little pin knife and then yep. a longer blade and then one that's a little bit wider. Mm-hmm. And um and so I don't want to carry that like that. That's something I know I'll. I'll probably lose and, right. and I'll regret having taken it out. Um, and so I wanted to buy this because it, uh, it, evidently it's made of good steel and, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, not super cheap. It's not super expensive. It's just kind of right in the middle there. Mm-hmm. And if I lose it in the woods or, or something like that, or, or drop it somewhere and it rusts, like I'm not going to, worry that much about it. The, the knife that I have that I do sometimes carry with me, I actually have two. The other one is, uh, in my work bag. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, a Kershaw tactical knife that, uh, our advisor, mine and Luke's advisor gave to me when I finished my PhD. It's uh, <laughs> kind of a lab tradition. Um, but this one is, is a case canoe knife. I'm showing it to you guys so you can see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the, the profile of the body, it, it looks like a canoe with peaks on either side there. Um, and so it's got two blades on it. Um, I dropped this one time in the creek while I was uh, first doing PhD work and chipped the, the tip of it off. And there's still uh, a chip missing from the yep. very tip of the yeah. knife. Um, but uh, my grandfather gave me that as a, a Christmas present. Probably in 1997 or 98, somewhere around in there, which to me, I was thinking about this earlier today, like, you know, that doesn't seem all that impressive. But when you consider the fact that that's, you know, 17 years ago, um, more than that, right? Yeah. It's 20, 23, 23 (laughs) 23 years years
3: ago. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Your knife can vote and buy liquor.
1: It's, it's, it's quite, uh, quite a run for a little pocket knife. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So that's that's the only knife that I have that survived my my childhood and and uh, all of my tendencies to uh, misplace and lose objects. But anyway, I've, I've just been going down this rabbit hole of thinking about pocket knives um, and their utility and the senti- sentimental sort of feelings that we give to them uh, based upon who the owner was. And when when the ownership transfers from one person to another, it's it's really something special whether or not it's, you know, your, your, uh, family member or friend or somebody gives it to you, or if they pass away and it it comes into your possession, like it, it becomes a treasured heirloom, I think. And, um, they're also functional. I I don't know. There's, there's something really cool about them. So, yeah, man,
2: I agree. Uh, and that, that, uh, that canoe style, that's a, that's a, that's a killer,
1: a killer design. I, I love that shape. Like it's just a, that's a beautiful knife. I love it. It's got a big, wide sort of handle, mm-hmm. and I like that. And the, the blades are pretty fat on them, yeah. too. So I guess I like short, stubby knives, too. <laughs>
2: yeah, I picked – I've, I've uh, done that with a couple of my grads. Like I do the the knife thing with my grad grad students, and I've picked out the that canoe, that case canoe for, for a couple of them just because – I don't know. I also think there's something to, like, pick of the knife for the person, too. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, my, my go-to designs are – the canoe and then also Case has this thing called a sodbuster, which is a very it's not it's it's not it's not plain. Well maybe maybe it is. It's just a single blade. It's a it's a single blade uh, uh, a knife but it is just the most beautiful like utilitarian design that you could have. Like between like that and like that canoe design and then like the stockman that was the other design that like i had like two or three old henry and like case like stockman's over my life like that sort of three three blade design that's kind of the workhorse at least for where where i grew up with like that's what everybody carried in their pocket was some sort of variant of that and that is the most i don't know like appropriate of like you know, we don't carry dirks and, and and blades on our on our side with a pommel. Right. Like, that's the thing that's in your pocket, right? Yep.
1: Right, yeah. You don't have a stiletto in your boot. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I have
1: a cane sword. That's pretty rad. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that. Pray that you But is that, right, Is <laughs> that... That's only for uh, uh, walks when you're dressed up fancy like uh, Dr. Jackal?
3: Right, when I'm going downtown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> When he's man. dandy, he's a Fopper dan, or a dapper Dan man. Yeah, when <laughs> dapper
1: I put dan gel man. in my hair. That's when I bring <laughs> my sword. Came that's so. That's a lot about uh, pocket knives, and probably more than you wanted to hear. But uh, that's three things that we've been interested in over the last week or so, and we mix them together, put them to, uh, uh, in a pot, and cook it up nice. Call it one thing. Nice
2: man. That was that was a good one thing. I like the uh, awesome. I like the knife
1: the, the knife wrap up there.
2: That was. That was a good little uh, little story time in and of itself, right
3: there. I like it. I lost my old timer at Christmas last year. I'm still very sad about it. Yeah,
1: it's and it's devastating when you lose them uh, yeah. because of the emotion and sentiment that is, is sort of uh, attached to them. And I, you know, I'm sure that people who have a lot of different tools and and do a lot of shop work have different sentiments tied to different tools, but I'm not, I've never been that kind of person. Um, but pocket knives, you know, my, my grandfather carried them, um, both on both sides. And, uh, uh, I've, I've just always kind of emulated that.
3: Yeah, man. It's an important pocket tool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Go go ahead. Sorry.
3: Oh,
2: I I was going to say between like, uh, like uh, a handkerchief and a pocket knife. Like those are the two, like totally like old man redneck things that that I that I that I do. Like it's just ingrained into my like I don't know <laughs> into,
3: into my bones. <laughs> it's e- EDC
1: before EDC was a thing,
3: man. Yeah. Are yeah. are your, are your uh, handkerchiefs plain or are they paisley or?
2: uh so i use the generic uh you know the ones that have like the designs around the the the, the edging but like i have a varied selection of blue red and white like okay. just the three packs that you'll buy uh some of them i'll just rip the, like if i've ever had to like you like I've, i have some of them that are kind of frayed on the edge because i've had to rip the end off to like get some rope <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, Liz just sort of shakes her head at those, but yeah, I, that's what I use. What do you them? guys do?
3: I don't have a handkerchief.
1: Okay. Yeah, I, I don't typically carry them. Um, I've got a couple. They're the you know the red and blue two pack like do rags that that you see.
3: My grandpa was complaining towards the end of his life he couldn't find good paisley looking ones anymore that they were all camo and stuff like that, eagles on them and stuff.
2: It can be hard. The other thing that I that I found too is a lot of them are kind of slick, like silky. Yeah. Uh, which is not what like that's you want a awful. handkerchief that's like that's cotton that yeah. if you're actually like sweating too hard that your butt sweats and then it soaks your hanky through the back end and then you end up like with a with a, a soaked like hanky back there. But that but that's what you want because you want something that's absorbent that you can actually either blow snot into or you know wrap around something or wipe your hands off with. You want that absorbent
3: nature to it, but you can you yeah. have to break a window out so you can steal government. <laughs> yeah. Just
1: wrap wrap yeah. around your fingers so you don't escape, scrape them. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. I, so remind me to tell you guys sometime about my, uh, Papaw June on my dad's side, getting drunk and buying me a knife when I was an infant and <laughs> my mom taking it to my grand, my other grandfather, my, my papal Oak. And uh, him keeping it, um, I just thought about this knife the other day. I dreamed about it, which is weird um, it's because I have knives on the brain, I guess. And I uh, asked mom about it, and she said she has it. And I haven't seen that knife since I was 12 or 13 or something. And, and papa showed it to me, and he said, I still don't think you're big enough to have it. I'm going to keep it.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that's that's one thing. And now let's talk about the uh, the film The feature presentation uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou uh, Released in 2000 Written, produced, and directed by Ethan and Joel Cohen uh, Starring George Clooney as Ulysses Everett McGill John Turturro as Pete Wallet, Tim Blake Nelson as I didn't write down his character's name Delmar
3: Delmar O'Donnell
1: There you go, okay <laughs> Um, and featuring Chris Thomas King, John Goodman, Holly Hunter, and uh, Michael Batalucco, among others. Um, where do we start with this movie, you guys? Like, on on the surface, it seems like such a simple thing to talk about. It's it's a it's a road movie. It's a it's a an adventure uh, as as these three guys are are making a run for it and and, and trying to get to this treasure, um, but. Upon subsequent rewatches, I've noticed different things about it each time. And so where do we start? The, the themes, the characters, the plot, the setting, like all of these things I think are important.
3: How about when was it that you first saw it and where?
1: Um, it was the fall of, of uh, the year 2000. And uh, I was a student at Moorhead State. And it was free free movie night, free Friday films nice. for Morehead State students. And uh, so I went and saw "Oh Brother, Where Art Thou." I, I actually didn't know anything about this movie um, yeah. when I went to see it. I hadn't I hadn't really seen a preview or anything. How about y'all? Yeah, uh,
2: I mean, I saw it, and I didn't know who the Coen Brothers were at that point. Uh, similarly, like I had graduated high school, started college that year. Uh, I don't remember the first time I've seen this movie. This is one of those movies that I've seen oodles of times, and I I don't know. Like it, it's just been something that I grew up with. We had a uh, a VHS tape of it back home whenever I would like end up back home, uh, and I don't know. Like it's just been something that's played in the background, but I've always been enamored with it. Uh, like from, from when it came
3: out? I was 13 and my cousins had it. It was like the third movie I've ever seen on DVD, if I remember correctly. I think the first one was The Perfect Storm. We got my dad, oh. dad and We got a DVD player for him in that movie. But uh, we watched it in the basement of my grandparents' house. I was totally transfixed. I also didn't know who the Coen brothers were. I didn't know what the Big Lebowski was. I didn't know anything about any of it. Uh, but this movie had me totally spellbound. It was... It was one of those movies that, like, gets you into movies, I think, for me mm-hmm.
1: at least, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, I can see that.
2: Yeah, and I, I don't know, like, how old you were, Josh, when you saw Lebowski. With me, I was definitely, I was a sophomore in college. Uh-huh. Uh, it was something that I w- I remember watching it that second year that I was in college, and uh, when did Lebowski come out, actually?
3: It was the precursor to this one, I thought. Yeah, yeah, I think like ninety eight, ninety nine. Yeah, because because yeah,
2: yeah. Uh,
3: but I didn't,
2: I hadn't watched that uh, before before being in college, and this was definitely something that was like concurrent concurrent with that. So I don't know. I guess that was kind of like seeing those two movies sistered up to one another was kind of figuring out what it means to be like auteur film creators like right. you know beyond beyond being like Scorsese stacy or uh so, somebody like that that's kind of older like that there were i mean well i actually i mean i guess between uh tarantino and the coen brothers those were two like the two different uh creative groups that kind of made me realize that you could have like filmic vision. Like I totally subscribe to the, the auteur kind of theory of, of film. Uh, and to see
1: that on stage. Yeah. I, I, whenever I watched like, like you guys, I didn't know who the Cohen brothers were before I saw this movie. And I hadn't seen Lebowski either. I, I definitely was in college, but I don't remember what year it was. Um, but Like you said, Luke, watching a Coen Brothers or a um, Tarantino movie, it it felt different at the time. You know, I I was a lot younger, um, you know, grew up on a steady diet of uh, Van Damme and Schwarzenegger action (laughs) movies and um, just hadn't really watched a lot of non-action-y films, I think. And so this one was it was free movie night. You know, you go get your dollar popcorn and hang out with your buddies and watch a movie uh, was pretty great. And and I was also transfixed by this film. Um, and I think at first it was the humor, the wit, the, the di- George Clooney's dialogue um, is is like a machine gun. And, and it just keeps it just keeps coming. Uh, Ulysses Everett McGill just keeps talking and everything that he says is buttery smooth. And you just buy into it and you like him uh, immediately. I like this guy a lot, even though I know that he's going to he's going to rob me of everything that I have. Probably. Um, he's
3: not I, I like really this guy a, a lot. <laughs>
1: no, no, no. He's he's a con man. He's a confidence man. Right. And I think that was what won me over. Just just his performance.
3: And so for me, it was even it was just like the very opening of it, the the look of it. It looks like those old patina looking photographs that you see in in an older family member's house. like there was something about that. and I know it's it's all it, this was like the start of a lot of those filter type films and like this leads directly to Breaking Bad having yellow for Mexico and blue for right. you know, but yeah, there was just something about it. that sepia tone that came on. We're looking over 1937 Mississippi chain gains. It was just, it was very inviting and it just like pulled me right in and it's crazy because you're looking at this chain game, the very first scene, and then some people escaping and as they're escaping, you're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go with them. I, I want to see where this goes. How about the music? How about uh,
1: before you saw this movie, did you listen to much uh, folk or country or bluegrass?
3: Country, I guess. Yeah, but bluegrass I had no experience with and then. This is the movie that kind of introduced me to some of the blues, because we have a Robert johnson s character in the film. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got, isn't it Bill Monroe? Am I, am I remembering that correctly? That's the bluegrass man in the... Ralph Stanley. Ralph
1: Stanley, yeah. Ralph
3: Stanley, sorry. Uh, That's and, fine. Uh, they're cornerstones. The they're, they're <laughs> uh, and yeah, just getting exposed to some of that bluegrass music and that banjo sound, that wasn't something I had a lot of growing up in central Indiana.
1: How about you, Luke? Did you listen to a lot of Bluegrass before this, or was this something that... Yeah, so
2: I know we've talked about music and kind of what we grew up with on the show previously. And so in western Arkansas, where I grew up, uh, a lot of the music actually is very close to the stuff that's here in that it's a lot of, like, Christian music. Uh, It's a lot of, like, church music. It's a lot of... uh, you know uh, those types of songs, and like once I got into to to college, which was concurrent with watching this, but really it was like second and third year. Once I started listening to like you know a lot of the jam band stuff, like I listened to the Grateful Dead, and once I got to Working Man's Dead, that's when that's when I went down the rabbit hole of like looking deeper and and further back into. Uh, like bluegrass and like folk music, like folk music mm-hmm. as a genre. Uh, and so that happened, I guess the year after that. So 2001 is probably when I really got into, got into that. But the music that's here is, uh, it's that, but it's also like, I think religion's an important component of this, of this movie. And, yeah. and belief is an important component. And a lot of those types of themes, uh, yeah, a lot of the songs I just automatically recognize, but of course, like whenever this came out, like this is when T Bone Burnett became like uh, a, 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 a name at, at a dinner table. Like people went like apeshit over over this soundtrack, and it became just a huge thing. Uh, and it's cool that it kind of like birthed the old, like the alt Americana music i mean that stuff was happening in the 90s but what the Cohen brothers did here you got to see and hear like i don't know any number of people but like jillian welch like do a little cameo and be one yeah. of the you know one of the women singing and it's, it's just cool like yeah yeah so so i i'd listen to this type of music growing up at the point that this movie came out, I had an appreciation for the older kind of music, but I was totally turned off, of course, to this, the music of my childhood. Okay. And that was something that I
3: re-discovered that there was, there was some good stuff, you know, underneath the, the bad stuff. You and a lot of other people though, right? Like this charted out at number one at yeah, number, number one yeah. on the yeah. billboard. Yeah. Like this was uh, a huge phenomenon.
2: The soundtrack. Yeah. yeah that's what i'm saying like people people went went cray for 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 the soundtrack yeah like mm-hmm. it was uh and and rightfully so it's awesome it's 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 like that uh you know opening opening track is just it's just killer
1: the you know the so good are you talking about the blues song? Oh no, I'm actually well,
2: talking about the uh, can like the, Big, the Rock, Big Rock Candy Big Rock Mountain. Candy Mountain. <laughs> like that uh, is like such a funky song that I has, know. but it, but it, to, it it sets the stage. So, so something else that's interesting to me, like you mentioned the the, the chain gang and the, the the fellows that are on the chain gang. So this is, I think, a, a quintessential like Coen Brothers move. Have you guys ever seen – I think it's called A Serious Man. Have you watched that Coen Brothers movie? That's one of the ones I hadn't seen. No. Uh, a while ago. I can't remember all of it. So it has this funky, funky, funky intro that's like this Jewish – Terrible, or this story that's almost like its own little standalone thing the fact that you see this chain gang and you see black men in chains busting rocks singing hymns and uh you know the 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 man on horseback with his guns and his mirror shades like that is a a story in and of itself uh and it, it there's there's some story that's telegraphed there before you start seeing the three white dudes running across the across the the field with their chains on uh it's almost like you don't exactly even know if they escape from that chain gang like the like the intro there is, is is timeless and so i think it's cool like This is where the Coen brothers are mythic in their storytelling. Like they're able to even take like a vignette or a scene and you have like these, this, this chain gang scene, which is standalone, uh, its own thing, timeless before the movie starts. And the music is a, is a, is a very different thing
1: that, so the song that the chain gang is singing in my head, when I hear that song, I can see, I, I feel like I could probably have visualized what was happening in the scene with, without actually seeing it based upon the music, right? Like yeah. it, it, it puts you there. And that I, I think is one of the movie's strengths is the way in which the music puts you into the scene. And in my head, you know, I've watched this movie a ton. Um, the, the songs and the scenery are, uh, inextricably bound to me. And when I hear the soundtrack, like I think about the scenes in the movie and, and like what is happening, where these guys are in their, in their journey, in their odyssey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm with you, man. The, the rock candy mountain, the more I think about that song, the the more mythic that song becomes because it's like a, a hobo going to hobo paradise, right? Yep,
3: right. Have you read the comic book called Big Rock Candy Mountain? I've not. I remember you telling us about it, it was, but I've not it, read it. it. It's really good. Uh, Kyle Starks and Chris Weitzer did that one, and it's about a hobo. It's called Big Rock Candy Mountain, and it's about his adventures. He's like a hobo kung fu king, and <laughs> he's, he's trying to fight off some gangsters and stuff. Uh, it's really good, but I think about that when I hear that song. The one that That's catches awesome. me a lot with this movie is "You Are My Sunshine." That was like my my mom's baby song that she sang to me and my sibling, and, Aww, and like man. that mm-hmm. was her thing. And then I heard it in this movie. I was like, "This is a horrifying song. This is this is awful. <laughs> Why do we sing <laughs> this to babies?" <laughs>
1: um, most of the songs in the movie, if you if you strip away the music and just read the lyrics, yeah. Are, are pretty dark and, and dismal, yep. right?
3: Very 1920s to 1940s.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, even uh, Man of Constant Sorrow. I mean, it's right there in the title. Right. <laughs> but it's it's one of those cool dualisms. Yeah. That, uh, that relationship between the lyrics and the music and the relationship between the music and the movie.
3: Luke, you called it a road movie or a, a travel movie. Is that what you said? I maybe Josh said that, oh. uh, but but yeah, I mean,
2: but it but it absolutely is, right? It's this odyssey, yeah, yeah, but right. but but what's the what's your question that you're leading with? I guess that it,
3: that that part fascinates me because I get the same energy from this movie that I get just like the watching of it that I get from watching the Blues Brothers, and I feel like it has the same sort of vibe of like people moving and, and traveling and doing and going. Their goals and the characters obviously are a little different, but. What is it about that genre that you think pulls people in so easily? Cuz I think it like you could even go to the Muppets, the new the the reboot of the Muppets that came out in like 2014 or whatever. It's got that same sort of energy about people on the road, people moving, people looking, people finding. What is it about that that genre or that that setup that keeps keeps us coming back?
1: I think it's dynamic. I think that you can just from from a practical storytelling standpoint, you can tell you put your characters in a bunch of different scenes because you're moving them through the countryside.
2: Right. Um,
1: but I think the reason that it's so resonant is that each of us has been on a road trip and, and we've had, uh, good memories from those trips and bad memories from those trips. And we see that kind of being unfolded on the screen. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm saying this as though it's the definitive answer. I don't have any idea. But uh, for me, it's it's that it's that, you know, I know how a long road trip is. And I know that uh, if I were to try to make this road trip on foot <laughs> slash stealing cars slash hitchhiking with uh, bank robbers, uh, it, it would be pretty exciting. I think right. that's part of it.
3: A road trip is like a, a play on steroids. It's a series of vignettes that you're you're moving through and some of them are enthralling and some of them are weird and some of them are off putting. But yeah. Some of them are a gas station you wish you'd never stopped at.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Yeah. yeah. You you uh you really need to get the key to the bathroom, right. but the guy can't find it. And uh that's that's part of the the side quest. <laughs> you here. gotta
3: buy your nutrageous bar to use the restroom. <laughs>
0: right.
2: So uh that's a very that's a very pulp style of telling stories, right? I think yeah. I think we I think we're tapping into attraction here. Like like that that style of storytelling is what makes Hellboy the comic, Hellboy the comic and that style of storytelling is what makes a pulp magazine, a pulp magazine. Being able to, to drop in and drop out. I think I think that's important. And I think this taps into something that we've talked about before. And specifically Josh has espoused this in a, a couple different places uh, in our conversations. That like weird tales and like pulp fiction is uh, specifically a very American thing. Uh, like, the, like that kind of storytelling. I think that's right. I think it's shown here. And I guess I would extend things like with 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 like your question John of like what makes a road a road trip such a an attractive genre like that is like the great American novel like that's what it is like grapes of wrath, grapes of is, wrath. Yeah, yeah. is are our people like in this exact circumstance striking out and there's there's a specific scene in Cohen brothers this this Cohen Brothers movies that, that evokes it, right? Like uh, uh our three guys hop on the back of a truck that's loaded down that is clearly heading west. Like they are they are going to a different place with with things loaded on the truck. At least that's the way that I interpret it every time yeah. I see that. Like you see like everything but the kitchen sink on the back of the the back of the bus. Uh like that that's part of it that uh Manifest Destiny headspace is part of it. Uh, that searching for something better like You Are My Sunshine, like Hope Against Hope, you've got a dreary song, like ultimately, like I'm a man of constant sorrow, but it's very upbeat. Like there's some level of aspiration and hope that's embedded into it that's very American. All of this stuff is very Americana. And that's why that's why the soundtrack is, of course, like all of this is Americana. Like Like the Odyssey... <laughs> Is is that story? But like that kind of road trippy thing is uh, is like an American tale,
1: it, and it's transitional. Um, the Odyssey transitions Odysseus from the Trojan War back to domestic life, right? But he disses the gods and spends however many years on on the seas trying to get home. Right. And and experiencing all these things. Um, and in this movie, man, the the transitions that are happening to the characters around the characters are, are staggering. Right. Uh, Pappy O'Daniels goes into the, the radio station and um, Homer Stokes, his his gubernatorial opponent, is driving by on a on a truck like with a megaphone and some, some music player players on the back picking and singing. Uh, And they're like, why don't, why don't we do that? Pappy. And, and he says, no, we're going big. We're telecommunicating. Like we're going to mass communicating. we're going to get on the, the airwaves. Um, and so we're transitioning from an older style of, of politic and campaigning to a newer style of politic and campaigning. Um, We're, we're transitioning from a different style of music to the, the soggy bottom boys and that new sound, right. That, that synthesizes, um, black music and white music. Uh, like it, it's, it's just so full of transitions. And I think the, the road trip aspect of it and the transitions from scene to scene sort of manifest that energy. Like it, it, it just captures it in a way that, that draws you in as a viewer.
2: Yeah, man, I think you're. I think you're nailing it. Like yeah. the 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 role of music in the in the movie is is mythic, and it's you know got got its foot in uh, rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Like it, it's not explicitly stated, but clearly, like the, the the rendition of the the soggy bottom boys doing "Man of Constant Sorrow" is not. Uh, Jerry Garcia, Shady Grove style, Man of Constant Sorrow. Like they are two very different animals, but that's the idea is they're, they're, they're funking it up and, and it's taken off. Uh, I love it. Yeah. I don't know, man. I, I very much think about this movie on the basis of its big themes and like the dichotomies that you're talking about, Josh, like, like those, like those are the, 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 the ways that, especially this time around watching it, I was really thinking about, like recurrent themes the whole way through like, and just scribbling down like (laughs) one, one words, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing.
1: What, what did you guys come up with in terms of themes for this movie? Well, let's maybe each do one.
2: Okay. I think that's a, I think that would be good. Yeah. And, and so we've talked about the road trip thing. So let's, so let's leave like road tripping. Uh, and and hobo and or or vagrancy or migrancy let's (laughs) let's let's set that aside and let's let's hit on a handful of other ones so i think the the concept like there there is a, a major theme of like it's not necessarily food but like consumption being like consumed by something that's something that they they feed on sorry that was totally uninter- like That's that was good. but that, but, they, but they they absolutely like the coen brothers seed that uh that sort of plot device and that theme into the story across the entirety of it uh, that you have this this focus on on being consumed with with something uh, and you can think about Big Dante like eating like that. At another point, there's a comment when you get like a like babyface George Nelson, or I shouldn't say baby face. He might no, no. he might get pissed, Bruce he might come after face. me. <laughs> but what, like, George like <laughs> <this>. <laughs> Delmar says at one point, he's like, What do you think's eating George? Like there's these these references Good, cool. to like like eating, there's those types of things that happen. Like they have such happiness in their face when they're eating apple pie. Uh, They're chasing a chicken so that they can eat. They talk about eating muskrat. There's all of these references to basically being hungry. And so I think it's this dichotomy between hunger and like consumption. And so I think that ties into uh, like the American sort, like the Americana like sort of road trip feel. But I think it's just a very powerful vehicle for – motivating characters and like motivating scenes like people either outright eating or
1: focusing on like some sort of like need I don't know
2: is that something that you
1: guys noticed or that that you pulled from for sure man like like you mentioned at the uh, outset of that the the three guys are consumed with this notion of getting to the treasure before it's at the bottom of of a lake that that's being made right Um and when you said that, I, I just so in my head, the the sheriff character that is pursuing them is the devil. He's that is not a character that that is subtly like you're <laughs> supposed to question whether or not he is. He is. That's the devil. And um, he is attempting to uh, consume them he's oh. he's trying to to put them in the in their graves and then they're ultimately consumed by the the flooding waters of the lake at the end that that's yep. cool man i hadn't thought of that and the the whole what's eaten george that's that's masterful yeah they it, it's 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 just it's like seeded throughout
2: the whole thing uh those types of they're not it's just like the the narrative it's like situations where they put the story together. Like when you have a montage and it's them, this is another, this is another theme, but stealing, but like thievery and dishonesty and whether or not you're bonafide, like the dude stealing the apple pie and they are so very happy. And, and you know what? Delmar so honest, he puts the, he puts the, the $5 bill or whatever under the rock and then they're running away and they're hooping and hollering. Like they're, they're so happy when they have something to eat and it's that, that's juxtaposition between being being a hobo that's down on your luck and having a a, a full belly. Like that is a that is a, that is a very sword and sorcery thing, right? Like how many sword and sorcery Conan esque stories has has Conan been hungry for days on end, and he finally gets a chance to fill his ba- belly and relax? It's like weeble wobbling back and forth with with great gains and and dramatic, you know, periods of, of, of drought and pause. Like, I don't know. Like it's, that's a theme that just stands out to me.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good call, man. Uh, They do, now that you mention it, they do eat a lot. Like there's a lot of emphasis placed on food. I I am thinking about the visiting the, the Hogswallet cousin, right. And, and eating the horse stew that uh, he slaughtered last Tuesday. (laughs)
2: Yeah, yeah, there's man. a lot for for a two hour movie. There's a lot of focus on what you have for dinner, like the the muskrats, uh, yeah. you know, m- muskrat Everett. Like like that's yeah. the <laughs> that would only arouse my hunger <laughs> without bedding her back down. <laughs> that's it's so good, uh, but anyway. So, but that relates to a lot of others, like a, a lot of other things. So, like, what were some of the other big themes that you guys had? What do you think, John?
3: I guess the the talk about the road trip part and everything. It really spurred my thought process about. Like this movie, much like the myth of America, is about trajectory, right? About starting from the bottom and moving to the top or moving to a new place and getting to where you want to go. And I think you even see that in some of the the soundtrack. Like when we start with Big Rock Candy Mountain, we have Pie in the Sky kind of dreaming where people are – they're hobos, they're they're vagabonds that are dreaming about where the lemonade flows and – the The rock can't like you know it's 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 heaven. There's,
1: there's a lake, a lake of stew and whiskey too. Yeah,
3: exactly. Uh, and the cops have rubber bullets and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's very picturesque. It's very American. It's this idea that there is something on the other side of your suffering that will make it worth it. Like we have this religion almost of of you suffered whatever you suffered so you could get to a better place and like yeah. it it's a religion and it ties into religion. So you get down to the river to pray where there's, you get saved and now you get to join into the, the race of, of capitalism, I guess, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And you're moving through all this and I'm a man of constant sorrow. Like you're, he escapes Kentucky in the song to get to a better place. It's always like, there's another day. There's another way to do this. And Ulysses and the, the, the fellas, they kind of exhibit this, like he's a con man. And as they move through this story, he just stumbles into being a bluegrass record star. That's going to be the governor's right hand man, because, <laughs> you know, because of circumstance. I, I don't know, like this, this idea that if you just keep moving, you'll get to where you need to be and you can have everything that you want to have.
2: Well, that's the American dream, right? right. Like, like it's the yeah. up by your bootstraps. You just – good things happen to good people. Capitalism
3: mindset, you get out what you put in kind of yeah. – It trickles down. Well, it is, <laughs> I, I guess that, the, part that you know, like the, the good things happen to good people, it's not necessarily – it's like good things happen to those that hustle, that, that keep on yeah. moving, that, that go to keep on seeing, to get to the point where you see the cow on the roof of a barn.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. Like you
3: didn't stop, you mm. you kept making it happen. Uh, you didn't let anything slow you down. And you're 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 right. It's not it's not good things
2: happen to good people. It's good things happen to to the hustlers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like
3: <laughs> they, I don't know. Yeah. There's I feel like there's something to that that we would look to this period of time as as one of the saddest in our history. Right? The depression. This is a bad period of time for people. But these guys come out the other side of this movie in pretty good shape for being poor white folk in Mississippi in nineteen thirty seven. I don't know. What do you think, Josh? I,
1: I, I like that. I so it made me wonder you said good people good like good things come to to good people. Who are the good people in this movie?
3: I don't well, yeah, I don't think there are good people. And I think Tommy if we, if we maybe but he sold his soul, he to, sold to, the his devil. soul to the devil.
2: And, but he's he's about the most honest dude speaking the entire time way through it. Like, certainly, yeah, he,
3: yeah. <laughs> I think there's something to be said for that, and I don't know if this is just 2020 me looking at this movie, but the African American experience in this story, the black experience in this story, would obviously be. I I, w- I thought it was very pointed. The N word doesn't pop up, but once in the whole film,
1: right so we, we watched it with the ca- captions on is that what you were about to say yep yeah
2: they clearly the term that is used in the radio station is not Negroes right the, the the radio record like the the record recorder repeatedly the caption is uh using the term Negroes but that is not what's coming out of his mouth right no and i think it's i think it is telling <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is or if it is it is he is slurring it in such a way that it is indistingu- indistinguishable right. from the slur right which, like,
2: is, which is intentional by the Cohen brothers, right Like they have they have clansmen doing choreographed dances to like <laughs> at yeah.
1: the
2: like the organized su- white supremacy like it, it there is every level of intention on on their part like with what they created here commenting on race uh it's yeah it's 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 very hard to even kind of kind of grok it like to think about how this movie you know when it came out versus
3: now like what what it means yeah and to, the, there aren't good people there are just lucky people in this right and if i kept on my soundtrack idea like the o death and in jail in the jailhouse now are a back to back on the soundtrack if i remember correctly
0: mm-hmm. and
3: okay. that's what happens to those that that don't make it through. You either die or you end up like Ulysses and Everett in the beginning, which is where you end up in jail. And maybe you never get out. Uh, Maybe you're just part of the system for forever. Yeah. I don't Uh, know if there are good people in this.
1: Tim Blake Nelson sang that song. He's dope. Yeah. um, No one else I think actually did their own vocals, but him.
2: Good for him. So, so I would argue like Delmar is a, is the, is the classic like, like dumb yet good hearted character mm-hmm. uh, versus the other two adventurers. Like, like Delmar, he's, his heart's in the right place. He's just so damn stupid. You know, he just can't help it. He just can't help but be dumb.
1: He's I do a bag of hammers. <laughs> is he, or is he, is he like the savant, like Forrest Gump? Like, <laughs> I, I don't, there there are moments. Simple he's very simple like the at, at the beginning where where Everett and Pete are yelling at each other about who's in charge of this operation and and Everett says well I'm in charge and and uh, Pete's like well I'll, I'm voting for yours truly and, and Delmar goes well I'm with you fellas, with you fellas. <laughs> that, that is that is genius um, but then later he's convinced that Pete has been turned into a toad by, by some streamside right. sirens
2: well and also you know so this is a, this is another level of I think the religiosity in the movie because I think while religion plays a very strong theme within the 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 movie and clearly the soundtrack people went ate Dookie for for the soundtrack with all of its like overtones but this is not necessarily a pro religion movie uh, and so when Delmar gets saved. And there's t- the comments about the Piggly Wiggly. Like the dude, you know, <laughs> he he's just blank slating it. Like he's, you know, he's clean. He's like, well, you know, he he's. I think there I was is lying a. And I'm Yes, I, I, I think there too. is. I love the Cohen Brothers. Like, like, like in 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 2020 vision, like they're throwing shade at race as well as evangelical uh, mindsets. With what they're doing here, and it's 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 beautiful because they are they are more earnest, like with the art that they're pulling into the story, like the soundtrack, like those songs are beautiful, and they're 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 delivering them in a very honest fashion, and it just sort of points out like hypocrisy. Like I, I think that this is this is such a strong way to sort of like like the Coen Brothers are funny. <laughs> Whether they're doing like laugh out loud like Lebowski laughs and like Oberther oh Waratha laughs, or they're doing like really uncomfortable, sad laughs in their their other stuff that's a that can be a bit darker. <laughs> like like they they are not afraid to like
1: point out irony. Yeah. And I was something you said stuck out because my my uh my theme was gonna be redemption. And I wrote redemption slash salvation. Right. Um, and I, I think you're right in pointing out that the organized religion is, is sort of mocked and frowned upon, but a personal religion is not. And so in the scene where Delmar and Pete run into the, the river with the congregation that's, that's doing the baptism um, and the scene that follows, the dialogue in that scene that follows is my favorite in the film. It's it's especially the the parts from from Everett, because he's just saying things like, you know, uh, especially when they pick up Tommy, he says, you know, I sold my soul to the devil. And Everett says, uh, you know, I guess I guess I'm the only one that remains unaffiliated. (laughs) Like he's he's pointing out that this is a this is a personal thing, right? It's a personal choice. and, And you shouldn't just fall into line with the people wandering through the woods to get dunked in the river. Um, it has to come from an an honest earnest place, and that honesty for everett only comes at his last darkest most desperate hour.
2: I love that he doesn't even give in to it though that he is a he is a he he is not bona fide and he's an agnostic until the end with, with <laughs> like he i i I love that. That's the turn that he's not died in the wool with anything. He just, he once the good turn comes. He's, he's, he's a total, he's a total, uh, American, American tale, right? Like he, yeah. it happened because it was supposed to happen. Not because of miraculous events, but because it was deserved or earned or just rewards or
1: something. There was mm-hmm. no providence. It was opportunity. And oh, but- yeah, yeah. great. But the the thing that I think, you know, uh, he's blustery all through the film, but the thing that makes me think that after his moment of of uh, like personal salvation with the noose around his neck and the floodwaters coming down and he's begging God for help uh, and apologizing for for straying um, later when the, the four guys are floating on the, the different furniture from the houses and he sees the cow on the, the cotton house, which is what the, uh, the Oracle at the beginning of the film, which we didn't even mention, but, but it bears going back to in a bit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the Oracle said he would see. And when I think when he sees that there, there's this, this split second of, of this earnest shock in George Clooney's portrayal of this character who up to now has not really, he's been just rolling with the moments and rolling with the moments. But I I think that there's something in that glance at the, the the cow on the roof of the cotton house that reaffirms in him. Yes, there's something there, there is something greater. Um, I could be completely misinterpreting.
2: No, I, I I think I, I I agree. Like he sees it, but the other thing is his hubris. Like that's like he, that, 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 that uh, the character that we're pre- that we're presented with would never not like he would never uh, admit defeat. Yeah, and yeah. and I think that's I, <laughs> that that dichotomy between what he knows in his heart versus what comes out of his mouth is really is really cool.
3: I'm intrigued so, by this religion point that you you were kind of brought up, Josh, because. To me, there are institutions that are lambasted in this, mostly political, like the idea of a governor and lifting yourself up over others and ruling them is lambasted with Papio Daniels and Homer Stokes, who are, you know, they feel very, I don't know, to me in 2020, I'm like, yeah, I understand voting between the two of those folks. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There's no religiously, like the guy that's dunking them in the river, he isn't. A fire and brimstone preacher he's not they're not making fun of that guy uh uh-huh. it, what do you think about that like that there is no religious character at any point that's easy to pick up and say like look at how the cohen brothers made fun of organized religion
1: but to me it's the the notion of, of big dan teague as the the bible salesman gotcha. selling every blessed word right right um that's that's the the key um, is
3: to buy it in wholesale <laughs>
1: uh that is the the portion of the movie that that sort of points out the hypocrisy of i i don't know the word that i'm searching for here commercialized
3: the, christianity
1: that's perfect yeah, yeah. <laughs> R- religion as a product
2: yeah so so the other thing too that i would that i would point out is that where we are within uh, the geography of the United States, like like religion in Mississippi or in the South, like it's not Catholicism. There's no Pope. There's no Cardinal. There's no like like uh, there's no uh, <laughs> point of contact to the hierarchy. Like like this is I mean evangelical. I guess actually. So a quick side note. So when did you guys hear the term evangelical Christian?
1: Uh, dude, I don't know. It, it wasn't when I was a kid. I was definitely in grad school, I think.
3: What about you, John? Late college years, yeah. Like, when I was in, in the Catholic Church, that was not a term that was familiar to me until I left home.
2: So, you know, we, like, where I grew up in Arkansas, uh, you know, the Hatfield Church of Christ didn't answer to anybody. Like, they were their own... <laughs> non-denominational unit right and the 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 hatfield like southern baptist church didn't answer to anybody like like non-denominational like christianity is the name of the game i think across the south like like that's part of it so i think i think religion and this is kind of a uh, tying into a larger theme here is it's a personal kind of experience. And I think that the church that you're seeing and the religious experiences that you're seeing here are personal in nature. And you see the juxtaposition of like personal religion with uh, commercialization by Big Dan Teague and the governors uh, like as, as political forces and commercial forces. So I think that there's, I think there's a distinction there between like, like, they're not necessarily the the Cohen brothers aren't necessarily taking aim at any given uh, religious institution. I think they're just pointing out the hypocrisy that's inherent in humans, uh, whether it's Delmar or it's Ulysses you know, like like it's it's uh Ulysses Everett McGill. Like like <laughs> you, whether it's either side of the, that fence, both both of those dudes are hypocrites. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Sorry, I didn't mean to necessarily detract. Like, like I I don't don't think that's the level of religion that's like at play
1: here, for sure. And and so my my idea here is that um, in some way the three characters are redeemed from their previous lives, uh, whether it's through the music that they produced or if it's through finally realizing that there's something greater than yourself in in Everett. Um. So what do you think the, the treasure... So let, let's talk about the oracle. The, one of the, the most interesting parts of the movie to me is this, this oracle that they meet early on when they're still chained together. And they see this old man using, using a pump handle rail car just moving slowly down the railroad tracks, and they jump aboard with him, and uh, he starts prophesying. How does that fit into the the movie, do you think? What do you make of that?
3: Well, they're very bold up front about basing this off the Odyssey and that these characters are inspired by that. So having a blind oracle-type character right off feels in line with that. And he felt very mystical to me off the bat because just minutes prior to this, we had seen a full steam locomotive. So... How is this guy traveling on the railways, pumping by himself blind, no help whatsoever and surviving? Like how does he get the cart off the tracks if a train is coming at him? Like does he just follow trains? What's his story? It makes him feel very interesting and different. Um, there's this there's guy- shades of the magic black person as well, I guess. I guess so. I guess
1: you're right. I, I was thinking this guy was a John the Balladeer character.
3: Okay. Say more about that.
1: Like, well, he's he's tapped into the, the mystical nature of the world in ways that the other characters are not.
3: I can definitely see that.
1: Like he, he is the, the mythic in, ter- in terms of like the Greek myth character. He, he along with the Sirens and Big Antigua as the Cyclops, like these three are the mythological touchstones in the film. Right. And there is some, some hint of magic, uh, uh, to some degree or another related to each of these characters, whether it's, uh, the ability to prophecy or the ability to cloud your mind and judgment and, and seduce you and (laughs) turn you into a toad. Um, or whether it's the gift of gab to bamboozle you into going out to a secluded spot and beating the crap out of you and taking your money. Uh, but it works best in terms of the story for me with this Oracle character. I wasn't actually thinking about this as a caricature of the, the magical Negro, because he's, he, he doesn't really help them. Right. You know, it's, it's not like he's bagger Vance. (laughs)
3: Right. <laughs> and he's constantly
1: there. He's he just sort of initiates the quest. Or, or or maybe he doesn't initiate it so much as he validates it. Um, And he tells them that you'll find a treasure, though it might not be the treasure that you seek. And I wanted to ask you guys, I asked Ashley while we were uh, discussing this movie the other night. What do you think the treasure was that they each found? Because clearly they found some treasures. What, what was the treasure, do you think?
3: If I were going to look at Ulysses or Everett, I guess that I would say the treasure is almost self-validation, that he doesn't need these outside influences to say, like, oh, you're a lawyer. Uh, you're a, you're an, a big, important man. That moment that you talked about where he sees the cow on the barn, it follows a few moments where he's pleading about just seeing his daughters again. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if that like hit me more as a dad. Uh, But the idea of that where he realizes he's lived a life and he has things in this world. Like that's the treasure maybe that he ends up with is that. Okay. That that he figured out I have done stuff that impacts the world. Uh, And it doesn't matter if it was I'm a lawyer or I'm the governor's right hand man. I'm part of the human race. I don't, I don't know how to put it necessarily, but like he found some sort of validation in that. Okay. That's a good treasure. What do you think, Luke?
2: So I'm going to, I'm going to play the other side. I don't necessarily think that there were many treasures that were found. Uh, so, so I think my interpretation of this movie has always been that, uh, Clooney's character, And the last act is sent on a series of additional like side quests or fetch quests and to go after a ring, but it's not the right ring. He's like, he's never going to be like, he's never going to achieve the thing that he's, that he's going for. Uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's with the woman that he loves and he's, he has his daughters. They're not the Warby gals. You know, they're, they're, they're back to, being the, the McGill, McGill daughters, damn it. Uh, but, like, they, uh, he's, he, he is not bona fide. Like, I, I take it that he is obstinate in the face of God, and does not uh, necessarily uh, uh, achieve, like, achieve true satisfaction. Uh, and we don't know what happens with the other two guys. Like they, they, we don't know what kind of treasures they got. They just got out with their lives. I think that's kind of the story. Is that it, it's the it's the it's the myth of of uh, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which I know is kind of a downer kind of statement. Like it's the be- but the beauty is in the, the the road trip itself, kind of thing. But we don't mm-hmm. see those other two dudes making it rich, as far as we know. Tommy, like the devil came back and. Ripped a soul, ripped a soul like, or he took a soul and like, like, killed him deader and deader in a bag of hammers and he's gone, right? Like, like, we don't know what happened with those guys. All we get is Clooney's character and the way that it plays out for him is, uh, the way that Holly Hunter is nagging at him and he's not necessarily made things just right just yet. Like he's always going to be going on another fetch quest. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like something that hit me this time around was the way that Holly Hunter's character is that I would have liked to have maybe seen something else beyond her being the character caricature that she is of the, like the, the, the nagging wife. But I think, I think she's intentionally not a good character the way that nobody else is a good character.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, Anyway, so that's, that, that's, that's been my, like, that's my interpretation. So I don't necessarily think that anybody found uh, uh, a big old pot of gold or, or a, a
3: ring to make things right. I guess that I don't think they did either, but I feel like they did get something out of the deal. Like I would look at Pete in particular and say that he almost gets the release of not having to worry about family. I mean, Pete's dream at one point where he talks about what he's going to do with their his $300,000 or, or however much money it is. He's going to be a fancy major d', he's going to wear a bow tie, mm-hmm. and people are just going to be nice to him. And he's going to serve fancy food and have a free lunch every day. He's clearly, the hog wallop name is like an anchor to this guy. He's right. trapped in familial relations and he can't escape it. Ever right. is trapped by responsibility to his family almost uh, mm-hmm. to like elevate them beyond his station that this American dream of like my progeny must be further ahead in the game of capitalism than I am right I don't know what Delmar's deal is other than <laughs> like he defeats expectations of what well, he wants he wants he to wants buy land. the family farm right. like that's that
2: he makes that kind of but the thing like we like Pete doesn't get to be a mater d like no. he's he's still he's still a broke-ass dude but he's, he's actually he's on a chain gang right like like, like that's kind of uh but he's free well,
3: of of his family at that point like he has seen right. through the myth of of blood is thicker than water and realized uh wash sold him out like i don't know anything to these people and i'm my own man and i get to be pete now i don't need to be a hog at first i can be pete first and a hog wallop later, like if it, if it needs to be. Uh, I don't know. Have you ever felt that? Well, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean,
2: yeah. Per- personally. Yeah. I don't think we're necessarily we're not shown that by Pete. Like we don't we don't see that level of like uh, satisfaction i see what like he thinking. he loses his uncle or he loses his cousin or whatever and he runs he runs his nephew off which is kind of a shitty thing to do but he does it nonetheless right. uh like Go back early on mom. in the movie like he he sort of loses that name in the first act and still wants to like get his 300k and be a major d and he's not he's not getting it uh at least from from George Clooney, because he's a, he's a snake, man. Like, 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 George, the, the the other thing, like, as a take home message, I like George Clooney does not change as a character. He is still not bona fide. He is <laughs> he is he is important Holly Hunter and he is trying to get married and he has a handful of girls, you know, by his baby mama. But he does not <laughs> he is not a bona fide man and he is not demonstrating so far that he is a bona fide man. When he denies the the cow on the roof, like that's that's my interpretation of of saying. him sticking to his his agnostic roots, which is not
1: necessarily a good thing. Like that's just yeah yeah okay, I can see that. I, I want to come back to that. Um, I guess the the treasure that I thought that they found was the the experience, the journey itself. And becoming close to one another because they they all seem to be isolated people, like islands to themselves, wi- without much connection. I mean, Clooney has his daughters, but his daughters deny him, right? Like yep. his his the uh, baby mama denies him. Um,
3: Best thing and he ever so, did was get hit by that train,
1: right? <laughs> yeah,
3: right. <laughs>
1: um, and then he then he loses. He's isolated from Woolsworth.
3: <laughs> a, a fate yep. worse than death, really. <laughs> is it the the is one store or the, the whole one, chain, or the whole chain? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so, I I think they found each other, and I think that is one of the the treasures that they find. And I think the other is even though they begin as inmates on this this chain gang, um, they are pardoned by the governor, and so they're they're no longer they're no longer incarcerated. Um, and then the, the other thing is they find music and this is what made me want to pick this movie for the season. Music saves them without running into Tommy and, and Ashley pointed this out. I have to give Ashley credit for, for this uh, uh, observation, but if Tommy Hatton not sold his soul to the devil and been at that crossroads, they might not have gone to the radio station to the recording studio And sang into the can. They wouldn't have known about it. Right? So meeting Tommy changed the flow of of the journey around them. Mm -hmm. Tommy is the the thing that makes their fates uh, turn out to be, if you're looking for any good in the story, to be good. And and so they go and record uh, Man of Constant Sorrow, the the Saki Bottom Boys mix, and ultimately perform it in front of a crowd. That, uh, you know, serves to solidify support for the incumbent for governor and ultimately makes them the uh, the power at the right hand of the throne. Like to me, to me, that is the treasure they find is one another and the things that come about because of that relationship and whatever happens with uh, Holly Hunter. You know, she she keeps saying that uh, Everett's not bona fide, but her her fiancé is in league with the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> right? Like, he's not bona fide either. <laughs> so she is no judge. She can't, I mean, who who is, she, I guess my point is, she is not a good judge of who is bona fide. In-
2: character, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, yeah, I think you're right. Like, Uh, who is an honest, authentic person is a question throughout the entire movie for everybody. Uh, Deceit is like another major theme of of the movie, not just for Clooney's character. All I know is if I'm Peter, I'm Delmar, I am not hanging out with Ulysses Everett McGill. Like, (laughs) like that dude, that dude, like as soon as, you know, he may be fun and he's a guy that's a slick talker, but he uh leads you on his own personal Odyssey for nothing for, for no recompense to you. Like like he's he uh he's a likable bad person, which is so, I think the the through line <laughs> for and, a lot and, of this stuff here. And I for gotta sure, say, yeah.
3: Josh, your summary right there in 2020 that hurts like to to hear somebody say Oh, the pain and suffering of a black man who sold his soul uh, helps to solidify the political dynasty of a corrupt governor, and <laughs> uh, helps mm-hmm. to solidify the furtherment of three white guys who well, like use his his position. I, I, that's hard. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I mean, he is he's part of it, right? Like, he is part of the soggy bottom boys.
3: He's he's, but he's clearly always forgotten. Like, he is. He's the accompaniment. Uh, he He's always an other. I mean, they even single him out at the the pinnacle scene where yep. Homer Stokes is like, these three boys is from a chain game, and I know that that black man sold his soul to the devil. Like, he is always going to be separate, and yep. he'll never be a soggy bottom boy. He's just there with them. <laughs> is, is so- bottom's
1: not soggy enough, or
2: is yeah. that what you're saying? And so here's another level to this. When they're in the the radio station cutting a record, there's some level of appropriation that's playing out. Right. Oh, sure. But only yeah. when it works, right? right.
3: Like that's, they're, they're that's, black yeah. until, well,
2: it's not an black. advantage. Yeah. 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 yeah.
3: But yeah. he's black.
1: <laughs> I love yeah. that scene, by the way, that I can never think of that actor's name. He's, he's a character actor, like from, from office space. Right.
3: Isn't that Bill Doherty?
1: Is that his name? I don't know his name.
3: No, I mean, isn't he from King of the Hill?
1: Oh, I don't know. Maybe. I, I guess I can kind of hear it, but uh, he—he's like the the guy from Office Space. Like, you know, have you seen my stapler? Yeah. I was I was told I could play my music at a reasonable level. Um, that character is um, Buck Wild, I think. When he, when he, after they sing the song and he's just like hollering and, and beating the glass with the, the clipboard. <laughs> it's, I don't know. That's, that's just really that funny. Was, uh,
3: I fine picking singing.
1: That was some mighty fine picking in a singing. Um, yeah. So I, I, just clearly this, this uh, freewheeling conversation shows the, the levels of interpretation yeah. that you can apply to this movie so it's, it's not as simple as it seems on the surface. I guess my, my happy ending is tainted by John's, uh, woke interpretation of my own <laughs> words. And now I, I feel really terrible about no, what I've said.
3: No, that's not what I meant. <laughs> let's, let's end by talking about why you wanted to include this in the Manly Wade Wellman season. Sure. So in my head, the soggy bottom
1: boys in inadvertently, um, save the state of Mississippi from supporting a gubernatorial candidate who is a, an evil, horrible person who is a member of the KKK. And And so not only is the music part of the plot, the the through line, mm. but the the music in this movie creates a lot of the the Hollywood magic, I think, as you're watching through. And so the importance of music to the narrative of Oh Brother Where Art Thou seemed to fit pretty well with the importance of music to the through line of John the Balladeer to me. And so I, I guess that would be my uh, quick and dirty explanation. Um, I guess my question is, does it fit? Did it work? Um, was, was this uh, was this movie uh, pick off base or did. Did it work on some level? And, and you know, be honest.
2: I think it absolutely fits uh, on the basis of this is a mythic story with a lot of levels of interpretation. And the Silver John stories are mythic with a lot of level of interpretations in and of themselves. That's one thing. Otherwise, we talked about how this is a series of vignettes, a series of weird tales, if you will. And that fits with our pulp aesthetic. And then I guess the final thing is this is an overtly, uh, critical, uh, uh, and appropriating Christian movie. Uh, and I would argue that the John the Balladier stories are critical, appropriating Christian stories in their own right too. So I think it fits on a lot of levels and there's magic in both stories. uh, (laughs) So and, yeah. and, and the devil walks, you know, in a very southern kind of style in both in both both sort of uh, uh, fields. So like those are the reasons I, I think this is a dead on uh, uh, a, a well manian uh, type of type of movie.
1: Awesome.
3: I, I think it was a great pick. Uh, I think the devil part that Luke just mentioned plays large where magic is afoot, even if you don't know it until it hits you in the face. Um, that really fits in with the the season that we've had, and the fact that music is power in this story also fits in with what we've been doing.
1: Yeah, and there's there's uh, uh, good uses of music and bad uses of music in this in this film right? in, ter- in terms of intent, and uh, that Ralph Stanley uh, you know um, acapella version of "O Death." being uh, crooned out by that, the uh, Homer Stokes character during that KKK ceremony or ritual or whatever.
3: I'll be honest. It's uh, chilling. Yeah. I love that song. Like I own the soundtrack. I listen to it in my Jeep sometimes and I love listening to that song. It's beautiful. And it kills me that it's sung at, at a cross burning in the film.
1: And there, there's something even more sinister to it when, when you see it in the film and the the footsteps yes. are accompanying like that per- percussive kind of... Oh, that, yes, and the chanting, yes. Yeah. I
2: think it's funny there's the gravity of that, but when I watched it this time around, I was cracking up and Liz and I were talking about the Klansmen like doing their, uh, their organized dance, yes. like how the Coen brothers are just totally taking a piss out of uh the, the this white supremacist like act like it's just it's awesome because it's the Cohen brothers and you know like but- a Jewish heritage there and they're doing this thing but like they are like li- like they are doing nothing more than like a glorified like line dance
0: <laughs> and it's a
2: bunch of like old men and 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 hoods and it's it's like i was just cracking up with the way that it played out but it's also offset by this whole like the 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 gravity of the situation
3: i think that that plays into part of our culture now like we've all listened to robert evans we've listened to people talk about the clan in modern times and i think what he has said in behind the bastards at least is these are people that would have been saved by dungeons and dragons like if they had an outlet they wouldn't have fallen prey to what they did fall prey to maybe. And I think that bears out like the idea of having kleagles and Claggles and wizards and Cyclopses and whatever they call themselves and their dances and all this nonsense. These are clearly people casting about for an identity. And it's so silly like to look at it from a modern perspective. The clan is so dumb. I'm sorry if you listen to our show and you're a clan member, you're dumb. Like your <laughs> your group is stupid no. and dumb. Uh, no, and I don't apologize for it. <laughs> but everything about it, everything about it is stupid. Like it's so dorky. It's so Yeah, like Homer Stokes is a dork. He is yeah. a total loser. And I I love that he gets run out of town on a rail at the end. Like He's he's just the worst part of America, all, all boiled down to one. And I don't know, I don't know what to end that with, other than to say like they they do take the piss out of the Klan. It they they really encapsulate all this like nonsense that they have that they try to use for power. And if you really strip away some of the fear, it's just stupid. Like the whole thing is so dumb. <laughs> it's, it's really situated yeah. by
1: the the scene where the three guys steal the robes and then jump into the procession right and they they don't know the they're they're all out of rhythm they're not marching correctly they don't know the the, the steps or anything like it's but they're trying
3: well like what the hell is the whole thing they've got shields and blood drops on them and across and like they don't know anything they're just angry and they're just They want to blame something. And so Tommy's going to get the blame, you know, Uh, him and his group of people. It's. It's sad. It's really sad. You know, Uh, the clan is a sad animal
1: for sure. All right. Uh, And
3: I'm glad John Goodman gets crushed by a cross.
1: (laughs) Um, I, you know. Even though the character is a Klansman, I, I really like Big Dan Teague and and the way he plays off of uh, George Clooney. It's it's just so good. They're they're dual sides of the same type of character. What else did did we uh, did we do at all? I mean, there's there's a lot here. Did you guys have any notes that uh, you wanted to get out there before we wrap this thing up?
2: Uh, I don't I don't necessarily want us to talk about anything else. Uh, because we're running, we're running a little bit long. Like we don't. I mean, I I really do feel like we can talk about this for four hours. Uh, a couple other things though that I think are that I just love about the movie. Uh, one that uh, the scent of George Clooney's hair product, uh, which is a symbol of his vanity or his hubris is a driver that allows for big Dan Teague to know who he is and recognize him. Like mm-hmm. basically the fact that he is a, uh, uh, a, a, a swindler and a dishonest man. Uh, that's something that's discernible. And the fact that the devil and the hillhound on his trail, like knows the scent of his fault fo- or no, not his fault, fo- his, 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 not his, his, his Dapper Dan. I love that. Like, I, th- I think there's a whole other level of, hubris like as a as a conversation point that's one thing the other thing that we kind of talked about with your uh with your comments about like a uh, uh redemption versus uh, uh like just in rebirth josh i love how often they use the term goddamn it in the movie or goddamned mm-hmm. like for such a religious movie they use the gd term like so much and I think that is a whole other conversation in and of itself about why the movie is what it is, and is not necessarily this uh, this strong vehicle of like Christian ethic and Christian morality. It's actually talking about the the mealy mouth stance of the human race and the mealy mouth stance of George Clooney and everybody else that uh, ascribes to like. Some sort of religious ethic, and then drops the GD the next the next scene. I think I, I think it's beautiful. I, I every time I hear uh, that get dropped on the 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 film, I, I it just like it makes me like blush and and, and chuckle a little bit. So those were those are the two other main things that that I think were were strong to me.
1: I don't want fop
3: dapper Dan man.
1: That's right. Anything else, John, that you want to get off your chest about uh,
3: – uh, I yelled about, about the plan already, so I'm, I'm feeling fine.
1: That's fine. I mean, if you've got anything else. Oh, also
2: also railroads. That was another thing. Railroads is a symbol which we've talked about in, in Manly Wade Wellman uh, uh, stories previously. But think about railroads in relation to the Great American Tale, the Great American Novel, and road trips. And, and railroads is like – being able to move through vast expanses of time through liminal spaces. I think that's another big thing.
1: How, how many okay. times did they find themselves in a car and then lose that car? But the, the old man on his, on his handcart, he's, he makes it all the way to the end of the film, right? Like he just keeps pumping along and he, he makes it. Yeah.
2: Oh. Oh, I got one more, one more, an <laughs> extra, an extra one. So uh, the the symbolism of uh, the TVA and flooding a valley uh, for uh, civilization's need, needs as opposed to like the needs of like local peoples. I, I, I mentioned earlier that there was the family that was busting ass out in the – or maybe it wasn't a family, but you saw the vehicle that the, the three – protagonists of the story hop on those people are leaving because the area is about to be flooded like that's the that's the narrative that's established this is the same narrative that takes place of course in the in the the movie in the book deliverance and uh the the idea of uh civilization versus barbarism is a deeply southern conversation in a lot of remarks in a lot of respects and I think that this movie has a lot of civilization versus barbarism uh, arguments especially if you think about the governors and the governor races and, and the fact that they're not bona fide look at
3: you ah. pulling in the main thesis of the crime cast
2: <laughs> yeah. dude I swear like I have just like read I just like scribbled rando like dichotomies <laughs> old star and it, but there's just so much, like in this movie. Uh yep.
3: You get a gopher yeah. dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gopher.
1: We run upon a whole gopher village. <laughs> gopher? Gopher ever. Gopher. gopher. Uh so shall we bring this this to a close
2: yeah. then? Close our season yeah, dude. Do, do we so we're closing the season out at this point? Is that
1: is that true, guys? I think that's true. Yeah, um, I think this is a good one to to end on. Um, I think we've touched on all of the 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 themes within our uh, Silver John stories that overlap with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And uh, man, this is. Uh, I just think that this fits really well with that milieu. Like it it just it just works, and it's hard to articulate i mean we've been talking about this movie for two hours now or so and uh have have i think not i mean we've scratched the surface for sure but we could talk for another hour or so like oh for sure um and and so i i think this is a good one um to end on if you guys out there listening haven't seen oh brother where art thou I really urge you to read the handful of stories of uh, uh, John the Balladeer by Wellman that we've put forward this uh, uh, season and then watch this movie. Uh, I think it's going to be a real treat. And I I think you're going to see just how the wit of the Coen brothers meshes with the wit of Wellman and uh, just the, the down home kind of rural country backwoods aesthetic in those stories and how it plays with uh, the 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 movie, oh brother, where art thou? So check it. It's beautiful. It's good. Where are we going next? Are we going to announce another road? It's up to you, buddy.
2: I'm I'm okay with it. Are you guys okay with it?
1: Do it. I do it.
2: All right. So we've had some level of uh, cussing and discussing. Uh, prior to this episode, and we figured out where we're going to go next. It's kind of a, it's kind of a logical extension of our, our convos here about uh, manly Wade Wellman. It would be appropriate to talk about one of his proteges. Uh, we're going to move on to Carl Edward Wagner's stories for our next season, and specifically, we're going to be talking about uh, Kane's story. So we're not going to get into all of the stuff that Carl Edward Wagner did, we're just specifically going to be talking about uh, the character Kane. And while there's five or six different Kane books that are out there, uh, similar to our conversations about Fawford and Mouser uh, and delving into Liber, we're not going to do it all at one, at one, one go. We want to make sure that we're doing seasons that are, the right length for us and probably the right length for you, the listener, we want to do things that are in the neighborhood of like, you know, 10 or a dozen episodes, something like that. So that it's, it stays relatively fresh with us. And hopefully it's something that over a few months with you, you're, you're keen on. So the stories that we're going to be reading, if you want to go ahead and acquire them and you don't already have them, we're going to read, uh, the short story collection, night winds. And then also we're going to read the novel bloodstone. So those are the two different books that we're going to delve into. I'm, I gotta be honest. I don't have those, those deep pockets. So I don't have those centipede press, uh, uh yeah, anthologies. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I mean, also I wasn't reading, Carl Edward Wagner, when those came out, so I don't, I don't have them on that front. But if you want to splurge for these paperbacks, if you don't already own them, they are a pretty penny. Uh, you're going to spend in the neighborhood of uh, a minimum of fifteen to thirty dollars probably per book. But the good news is you can get these digitally uh, cheap as of this recording via Amazon. So uh, it seems like those uh, digital. Uh, Versions, the Moby files, the Kindle files, whatever you want to call them. They're, they're legit. They're not, they're not, they're not bootleg bunk materials, but the books that we're reading are night winds, which is again, a short story collection. There's either six or seven short stories in that one. And then bloodstone, which is one, uh, one novel. And so all told that'll give us, you know, eight to 10 episodes worth of content. And then that saves enough cane for a sister season, a sequel, if you will save some for a rainy day
1: a candy day
2: so (laughs) oh you just slayed me dude uh so i think i think we're on the road to carstool like it like one thing about wagner he has some funky ass names for all of his different like geographies and his lands and his regions but we're on the road to Kane. we're on the road to wagner and it's gonna get it's gonna get a, a, a bit darker on the horizon at least for the next season because these stories are not necessarily uh happy, happy sunshine there. <laughs> like Kane is, uh, is an anti hero and is, a he's a character. He's not necessarily a protagonist. He's not necessarily an antagonist. It kind of depends on what the story is. I'm super, I'm super psyched to, to read these with you guys.
1: Yeah. I'm excited because I haven't read any of them yet. So the, this'll be really fun to crack the, the spine on, on some of these, uh, short story collections
2: nice and have you read any of them john nope this will be my first
3: experience you're going to be my tutor
2: nice so you guys are total total uh total big v's here with with your cane stories i've read night winds i have not yet read not yet read uh bloodstone so i've read all the short stories but not the novels uh we'll we'll put the story list online and we'll figure out how we're going to do this but uh, but yeah, we're gonna we're gonna start off getting into Nightwind. So if you want to rustle that up as a as a paperback or as a digital uh, copy, and you want to read along with us, you gotta you got f- a few weeks to get into it.
1: Yeah, we'll post links. We'll we'll make sure you guys know how to get to the stories, and uh, we'll see you a little bit further down the road to Kane.
0: Still gambling, rock, He thought he was the smartest guy around. Well, I found out last Monday that Bob got locked up Sunday. And they've got him in the jailhouse way downtown. He's in the jailhouse now. He's in the jailhouse now. I told him once or twice to stop playing cards and a shooting dice. He's in the jailhouse now. His poker, a peanut, a whist, and yogurt But shooting dice was his favorite game well, He got thrown in jail With nobody to go his bail The judge done said that he refused the fine He's in the jailhouse now He's in the jailhouse now. Well, I told him once or twice to stop playing cards and a shooting dice. He's in the jailhouse now. Someday I will be a beautiful butterfly.